Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast, episode 515. Oh, can you hear that that noise in the background? It's my it's my computer processing the podcast I've just recorded because I'm so excited to send it over to Buddy Peace, the best producer in the world, because it was so good. This week's guest is John Ronson, and that's what's processing now. And my computer is going all out because we had a big, deep, heavy wandering conversation i last had john on the podcast seven years ago so you can imagine there's a lot for us to catch up on and boy do we catch up john's new podcast documentary the the debutante is on audible and it's so good i was gonna listen to it a week or so ago and spread it out over the week honestly i binged it mainly in one car journey and then the rest the next day it's absolutely fascinating you know what john ronson does he's always good so um yeah i was excited to talk to him and it delivered obviously we don't only talk about the debutante because he's had numerous things out since we last spoke and the world is a strange place listener and there's few people i'd like to talk about that more than uh john ronson so um yeah you're in for a hell of an episode. As ever, we are brought to you by speechdevelopmentrecords.com. We're stocking up very soon on the uh, on the We May Not Be For You and That's Fine sunglasses that always seem to sell out in moments. So keep an eye on the web store. And patreon.com forward slash Scroobius Pip is where you can support the podcast for like a dollar a month. But, you know, if you're not already subscribed to, uh, to Audible, save that, that dollar a month and go and get involved over there because John's podcast is well worth listening to. I've just started listening to Garth Marenghi's book, audio book over there. John's got numerous things over there. There's two Partridge podcasts. I think there's a third on the way, you know. So yeah, this isn't a paid advert or anything. I'm just using Audible a lot at the moment. I mean, I could ramble on for ages, as you know, but this is, as said, I'm so excited for you to hear this and I think you're going to be tweeting about it and shouting about it we talk about some hot button topics is that a phrase i think it could be yeah we talk about some stuff that people have a lot of strong opinions on and we kind of seem to be on a similar place with most of them so that's a good thing let's get into it this is the distraction pieces podcast episode 515 and it's the return of the one and only actually before we go in if you've not tuned in before go back and listen to the previous episode with john ronson we mentioned louis theroux here go back and listen to the episode with louis theroux previous guests include stephen fry load just loads of good people i've had journalists i've had writers i've had doctors i've had all sorts of amazing people i've had like way back again years ago in 2017 i did an amazing episode with Suad McKennett, amazing journalist who kind of uncovered the identity of Jihadi John. So yeah, go back into the archives and dig into that. There's loads in the archives for you to enjoy. I did an episode again that long ago now with fullfact.org who just started up at the time and their whole thing was fact-checking politicians and just general interviews on live TV, on in newspapers, in court cases. And that you know, went on to become one of the most crucial resources in modern society because fact-checking is important. So go and dig into the back catalogues a bit. Listen to the episode with Loki. Listen to the episode with Akala. There's some amazing, like, fact-driven podcasts. Darren McGarvey recently 
amazing episodes where we're combining journalism and music and culture and all sorts of things. So yeah, have a good dig. But for now, this is episode 515 of the Distraction Pieces podcast with the return of the one, the only, John Ronson. So how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I've started recording now as well. I'm good. But how are you, man? Because we've been kind of lining up talks for ages and it keeps not matching up. So I'm really pleased to be uh, to be l- looking at you, even if it's through a screen. <laughs> well, it's, I'm actually on my way to London. I'll be in London in about 10 days. Yeah. So I'm sorry not to be in the same room as you. The last time I saw you was a time of conflict, and I'm glad there's no conflict anymore. You probably don't remember. What was, was the conflict more... at that point? Well, so you've been publicly shamed to just come out, and um, and for a little while, for like a month or so, like everybody had an opinion on that book, and I yeah. was just caught between a whole load of landmines exploding all around me. And, yeah. and, I, saw, and I just have a memory of like, meeting you in a hotel, and it was all kicking off. Yeah, or you have a habit of finding yourselves in the middle of what you're investigating as such, like things fell apart was a prime example of that, of by yeah. midway through your, it's, it, it was a podcast about the culture wars and by midway through you're kind of in the middle of the culture wars. and being, Well, yeah, because so you've been publicly shamed was banned and continues yeah. to be banned in certain American yeah. states. It became uh, one of the relevant things that was being argued and you're like, oh, right, yeah. I'm just making a documentary about how... <laughs> about how people overreact and then it's oh here i am right i became a banned book and sadly it was the same time that the 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 cartoon book about the holocaust mouse was banned yeah and uh, and i think most of the most of the coverage rightly so like i'm not complaining was about how terrible it is that mouse has been banned so i was like a second tier banned book yeah (laughs) But yeah, yeah, what a bizarre thing. I, I, what I noticed about that was I was banned in one state, I think it might have been Arizona, and then some other states just noticed I'd been banned in Arizona, and they just like banned me in their states too. So that's how it works. You end up on, you're on a list, and then people share the lists, and then they, and people's research don't go any further than the list, is my guess. How how are you finding all of these things kind of in recent years? It's it's interesting. I was listening to another podcast and they were talking about the debutante, your the 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 main thing we're going to talk about here, your new podcast. And they were saying how you and Louis have kind of gone in opposite directions in that he's gone more kind of light entertainment and you seem to be getting just heavier and heavier into the into the, the mess of it all. So so right. how do you find that? At, at this point in your career? Because it's it's got to be mentally taxing right. to be, be, kind of become uh, the target at points or become the subject. Well, yeah, but I don't, it's funny, I'm not like consciously getting heavier and heavier. And when there's room, you know, when I can find a, a joke, I'll go for it. And yeah. in fact, I'd say there's moments in The Debutante that are really funny. Like I interview The Debutante's first husband, uh, Greg, yeah. And he's just, and, and that's like hilarious, this this crazy shotgun, you know, elopement that, that they, not shotgun, a shotgun is when the father, yeah. uh, right, yeah, no, this was the opposite of a shotgun, they, they yeah. eloped. 
So, you know, there is a lot of funniness in, in the debutants, and I would hope in, in some of my other most recent stuff too. But Louis' interest, like, like I love kind of all of Louis' stuff, but I really yeah. love when he goes into those dark places yeah. too. So, for instance, there was this, when I think of Louis, one of the first documentaries I think of is this one called A Place for Paedophiles, mm-hmm. which is a two-parter that he did where, you know, when, when a paedophile like, does their prison term, sometimes they're just grabbed from the prison and taken to what's called a civil commitment centre and just put in there for like the rest of their lives, some sort of yeah. big windowless hangar. And Louis spent some time there and making a documentary about the relationship between the doctors and the nurses and the and the paedophiles. And it was just brilliant. And, I, and there was nary a laugh in it, but yeah. it was just brilliant. I suppose what I'm saying is I don't really, I don't know if I, if I think of humour and horror as especially different things. It's all just part of the storytelling. What's important is the storytelling. Completely. And I, I, I wanted, again, with the debutant in mind, which once again is fantastic, John. It blew me away again. I binged it in a day. Thank you, Pip. And I wanted to ask how you find the balance of humour when talking about such serious subjects. Because there was like a line that you deliver completely seriously, which just had me laugh out loud in my car when you're just, you're talking about the different people that Carol Howe met and was in contact with. And one of them was a mysterious German with political connections named Andy the German, which just sounded just, just the the delivery of his name, named Andy the German, just seemed hilarious on this very serious bit that you're talking about, the dark, the the white supremacists Uh. and all these other people that, that she mixed with, and then Andy the German. He sounds like a Guy Ritchie right. character. Yeah. Oh, there's another moment in the debutant when I'm interviewing her first husband, Greg, and she got, like, after they'd been dating just a couple of weeks, she convinced them to get matching swastika tattoos. Yeah. And Greg immediately regretted his. Like, yeah. they got, not so much that, well, the first night they got outlines and he immediately regretted it, but not so much that he didn't get it filled in. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> like, which probably took a while. But anyway, uh, he did regret his swastika tattoo and he showed it to me. And it's like, it's it's all covered in like little swirls and flowers and stuff. And I say in the, in the, in the show that, you know, to be honest, it makes it look like an effeminate swastika. Yeah. Uh, I, think yeah. I think there's something about my... He's fancied up his swastika. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're kind of stuck. You know, it's pretty hard to disguise a swastika. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's all, there's always going to be the essence of swastika in there. Yeah. Unless you get a, it completely removed, I it's guess. It's a bold one. It's a hard one to move away from. I know, right? But um, I, so I was I was raised to be like a fan of people like Kurt Vonnegut. You know, Kurt mm-hmm. Vonnegut wrote a whole book about the firebombing of Dresden during the Second World War, which he turns into a comedy. Mm. And and it just made me realise that when, you, when comedy and horror smash up against each other, and I really learned this from Vonnegut, uh, it makes the comedy funnier and the horror more horrific. Yeah. And, and so as long as you know, like, when to stop being funny. Yeah. And, you know, so you have your instincts have to be honed to that. I'm all for it. I think the funnier, the better. Yeah. And I think it's really important, like, the, the humanising of dehumanised people or subjects, like, like to make it, it more realistic and... and Louis, where paedophiles, a place for paedophiles, um, is a prime example of that as well, because it's easy in society to think of 
paedophiles or, in this instance, white supremacists or whomever else as these big Disney kind of, of villains. And it's important to shine like go, no, these are often worryingly normal people. And that makes it, it makes me kind of more yeah. aware that it's not something that's not, you're not going to see them riding over the hill on 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 horseback to to do their evil deeds. They're yeah. they're in our societies and communities, and yeah, well, often in your work, in this one in particular, as you said, with the ex husband, when you do sh- shine a light on them, they're kind of comical, embarrassed characters rather than <laughs> these big bold yeah. villains. And some of them clearly, like if you're if you're a psychopath, if you've got no empathy, no conscience. I, I personally, I find it hard harder to be sympathetic. So, what, so one of the worst combinations actually of human is a paedophile and a psychopath mm. because they've got all of these desires and they've got no conscience or empathy, so they've got no reason not to act on them. Yeah. So, yeah, if so, if somebody has a complete absence of empathy or consideration for other humans, it's harder to be sympathetic. But most people aren't that. Uh, you know, the average population of psychopaths is 1%, mm-hmm. uh, although that figure rises to 4% of CEOs and business leaders. Yeah, um, yeah. I wrote a book about that called The Psychopath Test. Yep. But basically, if they're not a psychopath who just goes around causing damage because of their neurological absence of empathy, what they almost always are is just a, is a grey area, a mix mm-hmm. of clever and stupid, good and bad. That's what we are as humans. And that's why the way that the discourse has been impacted by social media, I always find a little dispiriting because on social media, we love to portray people as either sickening villains or magnificent heroes. And most of us aren't that. Most of us are clever people who do dumb things or dumb people who do clever things. And that's a much more psychologically healthy way of thinking about our fellow humans, I'd say. You've, you've, you may have seen me starting to beam there because you've given a perfect segue to something that when we originally were going to talk on the culture wars period, mm. it was on my list of things I wanted to talk specifically to you about. But I wasn't sure it would fit in here, but you spoke about the grey areas and clever people doing dumb things and dumb people doing clever things. So, like, Alex Jones is someone that you're kind of permanently attached to and reminded of um, because yeah. of, of your books and your the stuff you've done with them in the past. But you've talked about that a lot. But someone I wanted to talk to you about briefly, as two former guests of their podcast, is Joe Rogan. Because I think right. it's a very nuanced and interesting subject because I used to be a big... Joe Rogan fan. I'm not particularly anymore, but I equally feel that the Joe Rogan fanboys are as biased as the Joe Rogan haters. And I think there is this Mm. kind of weird middle ground of this quite intelligent but silly human who's suddenly got far too much power and reach. So when he hasn't thought through certain things, it can do huge amounts of damage and, you know, is worthy of of, of anger and, and outrage. But it's not necessarily, as we were saying, it's not necessarily the villain that is sometimes painted or the good guy that is sometimes painted. So where do you sit kind of on Joe Rogan at this stage? Well, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts. Yeah. Uh, and I should say, by the way, that there is a sort of connection between Joe Rogan and the debutante because yeah. the debutante is a, is a story about 
this Tulsa debutante who really fell down a rabbit hole and made a series of very poor life choices and, and ended up, you know, completely out of her depth. And throughout, um, I can't figure out is the hero or the villain of our story. Like, even by the end, I was uncertain if I believed they were the hero or believed they were the villain. And yeah. Right. It's funny, I've got a pretty firm view on that, but yeah. I shouldn't say it. I'd, li- I'd like people to figure it out for themselves. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think I know what I think about that, but... I'm, I'm happy that you don't. Yeah, you know, it shows yeah. that I haven't. It shows that I haven't sledgehammered my opinion into the, yeah. into the show. But yeah, I guess the connection to Joe Rogan and a, and a million other people you can think of at this moment in time is that they go a little bit too far down rabbit holes. I think the great mm-hmm. the great tragedy of our times is people is this some weird combination that's happening of maybe middle age for a lot of people the algorithms, the echo chambers, and suddenly people find that their views, their opinions are just getting more and more hardened and less and less nuanced. Mm-hmm. And I think Joe Rogan is right in the middle of that, both with some of the guests that he has and also some of the things that, that he says too. Now, what I would say is that, have you been on Joe Rogan? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, thought, I thought you had. Um, I mean, I had a, both times I went on Joe Rogan, I had like a great time. Mm-hmm. And particularly the first time when he was still pretty unknown. Uh, well, I mean, I say pretty unknown. I went on Joe Rogan, it was like, I don't know, there'd been a few hundred episodes before I went on. Yeah. And then I would go around the world, I'd go to Dubai or I'd go to Canberra. And the constant was like people coming up to me saying, oh my God, I loved you on Joe Rogan. Yeah. So I realised pretty early on that Joe Rogan really had a big reach. Yeah. And I think he was, he was a nice guy. And I was grateful for the fact that being on his show introduced my work to a whole to huge numbers of people. So all of that's good. But like a lot of people, I suppose, he's, he's not quite as good as I, I would like him to be differentiating between reasonable and unreasonable thought processes. Yeah. And it's not enough to just be a sort of sort of free speech libertarian and absolutist who believes that all speech should be fine. And I'm not sure if Joe Rogan does believe that, but mm-hmm. a lot of people do, because it's it is a damaging thing. It's we've seen what unencumbered free speech has done to the world in the past six or seven years. It's been chaos and people don't want it. That's why people are leaving Twitter in droves because we Mm. don't want free speech absolutism because what free speech absolutism means in that context is people just being assholes, (laughs) you know, yelling at you and being offensive and like, what's you know, grinning trolls. Like, fuck it. We don't want, most humans don't want that. So... I mean, ultimately, I wouldn't. It's, on the other hand, when there was campaigns to get Joe Rogan banned off of Spotify or whatever, mm-hmm. A, there's no way that's going to work. Yeah. And B, I'm not sure that I would want it to work. Like, whilst I'm against free speech absolutism because of the way that it's, we can see the, the carnage it's played on society, or the deaths, the deaths of people who believe bullshit and then die for not taking enough protections, mm-hmm. for instance, with COVID. You know, I, I wish Joe Rogan was more, uh, had, had more of a sort of sagacity when it comes to which guests to have and less of a, you know, anything goes spirit. But I wouldn't want him to be banned. Yeah. I, I, I want him to, you know, figure these things out for himself. Yeah. Uh, what about you? 
Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I feel I wish I had a greater tolerance for the bullshit that comes on 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 Joe Rogan shows from some of the guest choice things like that. I know there was a period during the pandemic that I definitely went full scale kind of oh he's lost his mind he's doing and he I do feel there was genuine damage done because of misinformation spread and things like that. But then I can't remember who he had on. He had some guest on that I was a fan of. So I went back for the first time in a year or so. And I was stunned at points when he was speaking positively of the vaccine and positively of mm. and shooting down people who were putting forward conspiracy theories because having stopped listening, all I saw was the worst bit. So I had believed I had totally. lost the nuance myself. I had believed, oh, fuck, this guy's just gone terrible. And it's like actually tuning in. I was like, there were still some bits in that episode that I thought, oh, for fuck's sake, that would you could have Googled that in two seconds and seen yeah. that that isn't true, but now hundreds of millions of people have heard it. But as I said, there was far more nuance on there than I was expecting as someone yeah. who has previously heard hundreds of hours anyway. So, yeah, I sit in a weird place with it. I, I, I couldn't agree more about that. Uh, you know, this is one of the dangers of, of decontextualised moments from mm. shows like Joe Rogan's that yeah. you're right, everybody. We we define him by this slither of information. Yeah. And I'm the same as you. There's times when he's had a guest on that I'm interested in recently in the last year or two, and I've gone back in and listened. And on every occasion, I've thought, oh, yeah, that's an interesting thing that Joe Rogan just said. He's yeah. a smart person. Yeah. So if we're against the kind of, you know, defining people by some poorly worded tweet and we want to ruin them for their lives, which is what I wrote, so you've been publicly shamed about, we should feel exactly the same way about what you just said, that we shouldn't be defining anyone in that way. It's just it's it's detrimental to society, to the discourse, beyond what what the tweet is or the comment is. It's bad for society to do that. And, And so I completely agree with you. What I think is really interesting, though, is that so many people, people in our peer group and so on, have just lost themselves in in the way that people think Joe Rogan has and sort of hasn't quite. Yeah. There's a there's so many people that you look at on Twitter who who have just succumbed entirely to the culture war and have become just the most extreme version of themselves. It's easy to do as well because, like, as an example, I've got one or two friends who are a fan of Jordan Peterson. And I can't stomach a drop of that. Everything I've like again, I've not done an, yeah. I've not done as much research as I should. I've done a decent amount, but I've not done as much as I should. But I feel I have a natural bias to just thinking that guy's fucking just a con man and an idiot and a dangerous um influence yeah. and things like that. And I know that there have been points that friends have made v- valid arguments in his favor that I have not been able to hear because I'm like, no, no he's a fucking idiot kind of thing. And it's, yeah. again, I, I, I'm aware of that in my own bias, but in certain areas, it's like, well, no, I just have to succumb to that because, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, Jordan Peterson's a, a great example. I was thinking of Graham Linehan when I said that, yeah. but Jordan yeah. Peterson's a very good example because uh, I've read 12 Rules for Life, you know, his first big book, mm. and it's very good and it's sensible and I think it's really helpful for lost young men. But in, in four or five years, he's gone for offering very good advice in 12 Rules for Life to, you know, yelling like a Presbyterian preacher about how he's going to destroy, you know, woke moralists or whatever. And always being on the verge of tears. It confuses me. Every every clip I've seen of him in the last few years, he seems to be constantly on the verge of tears, which is 
sad to see in, in many ways. Yeah. Although I'm blushing a bit when I say that, because the last time I came to England and did a bunch of interviews, I, I was on the verge of tears and, and on Russell Brand's show right. and yep. on Krishna Guru Murphy's show. So, so, you know, I can hardly criticise Jordan Peterson for that when I've <laughs> bloody done that myself. <laughs> it's interesting, yeah. though, because there's so many examples of that. As you say, Graham Linehan... I think Russell at times has gone mm. completely off the deep end in ways that I don't support. I can't understand how he would go there. So I think it's such a weird time because there's these people who I can cite moments when they have been incredibly reasoned and intelligent and that doesn't compute with what I then see yeah. in different moments. It's like, how how are these the same people? How is this the same the same world? There's something going on and you see it. You know, the debutante is set in the pre-internet era, mm-hmm. but the same thing happened to Carol Howe, you know, the, yeah. the star of the debutante. She fell deep, deep, deep down some ideological rabbit hole and found herself completely trapped. And we, But we see that happening more and more today with the this, you know, collision between vulnerable humans and algorithms and echo chambers and so on, and people with, I guess, personality disorders and the way that narcissism is prodded and poked at because of the way that social media works. Mm. I think it's the biggest story of our times, like why people are retreating so violently to the edge of what they believe. Yes. It's it's all I want to write about. It's all I kind of think about at the moment. So I think somehow my next book's going to incorporate all of this stuff. Um, As I say, though, you know, it's not entirely new. The debutante was set in the pre-internet era, set in the 90s. And you see it happening in that story too. And 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 that's what's fascinating as well, though, because, again, on one of the points, I, it, this has been the easiest um, podcast to prepare for but because I've kind of made notes over the various years when we were <laughs> talking about maybe doing one. But on, on one of those, one of the questions was kind of how do you continue to find these unusual stories? Because, I mean, mm. all of the stories in your series on, on, the, on, on the Culture Wars just was things I'd never heard of, and it astounded me. But mm. as soon as I started listening to the debutante, I was like, oh, shit, no, you've been doing this so long, you can yeah. pluck these stories out of nowhere. Because this is essentially a podcast that's 30 years in the making from when you were talking <laughs> to, to Dennis to Dennis Mahan 30 years ago. And, and numerous yeah. of the people that you talk to here, it's... As a kind of audio nerd, it's exciting to hear the dropping quality because you were recording this literally in the early 2000s or or, or late 90s. So how mm. was this to kind of put together and what made you feel now was the right time to put all of this together, to revisit people, to to speak to people you hadn't spoken to previously, to speak to people who didn't seem to really realise they've spoken to you previously at first, it seems. So, yeah, how was it to... Yeah. W- 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 what made this happen now, I guess? Uh, it, actually, when it started before the pandemic, it started in about 2019, I just realised that she was the story that got away. There, there's two great mysteries to Carol Howe, which I always felt I failed to solve when I tried to tell the story 30 years ago. The first mystery is what was this charismatic, beautiful... Tulsa debutante, you know, a young woman that came for like great wealth and privilege. What was she doing hanging around with, you know, neo-Nazis in mm. backwards training camps in the middle of the Ozark Mountains? You don't meet many people like her in the white supremacy world. 
it's you know class wise like most most people in that world are working class yeah so so that was the first mystery like who is she how did she end up there like and then the second mystery was that she had this story that she was trying to tell the world and the story was that when she became an undercover government informant if people had only listened to her she could have stopped the Oklahoma City bombing yeah and people didn't listen to her which then speaks to why well, is this a conspiracy theory that could actually be true? Because what she was saying was that Timothy McVeigh didn't act alone. There's all these people, and she was reporting on these other people for the government, but the government, for some reason, either cock up or conspiracy, let it go. Or possibly misogyny, or possibly something really devious, like they let it go for some reason, mm. some dark reason. Yeah. So that was the other mystery. Is it really true that if Carol Howard had only been listened to, she could have prevented the worst act of domestic terrorism in American history? And one of the most important, because it was the first l- lone wolf terrorist attack mm. in in, and again, that's kind of, I mean, that's it. It started a hell of a trend. John, because that's a huge totally. thing in America now. It's a, it's depressing yeah. how, how. I mean, that would be a rabbit hole that would be too deep to go down to, to, to try and, mm. and look at lone wolf attacks because it's such a common thing yeah. now, sadly, in America. You're hitting on another reason why I wanted to tell the debutante story right now, which is that there's a big school of thought in America, particularly on the left, you know, among academics and historians, that actually these lone wolves aren't lone wolves. Mm-hmm. They're they're much more connected than we think they are. They're a real conspiracy and they're trying, they're plotting civil war in America. January the 6th, Charlottesville, these things aren't unconnected. They're a coherent plot by people who we think of as lone wolves, but they're not, to start a civil war. Mm-hmm. And the way to stop the civil war is to be much more proactive in stopping them, raid their training camps and so on. So that's a big thing, you know, that's a big relatively new thought process that's happening in in America on the left. And that's another really good reason for me to do the debutante now, I thought, because it really speaks directly to that. Is that true? so entrenched in that. Was this, how big was this? Was this an individual? Was this a great thing? And it's so hard because whenever you actually talk to any of the people involved in this, it's so easy to go, oh no, they couldn't have planned anything. <laughs> like, these people are idiots. This isn't, like, again, it's 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 alluring. Part of the allure of conspiracy theory is the idea of these all-powerful people, these mm. people behind closed doors. And more often than not, as soon as you dig even a little bit and you speak to some of the people suspected, it becomes far more fantastical to imagine them organising, like, a get-together, let alone a, 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 a huge right. nationwide conspiracy. Which then leads you to another question, which is, if all of these like important historians and academics are saying that they're not lone wolves, they're a much more coherent, connected network, if that's not true, then are they conspiracy theorists? Mm-hmm. And what does being a conspiracy theorist mean in this context? Yeah. Is it partially true? It just opened up a whole bunch of questions here. Like, you know, we're all prone to conspiratorial thinking. And, and so to think of the far right in America as being much more of a network than history would lead us to believe, is that true or is that a conspiracy theory? So all of these questions were the reasons why I wanted to do the, the debutante. Well, I was going to say thank you for, you know, that thing about how I find my stories. It's funny, I'm actually writing a, I'm doing a writing workshop in London on the 28th of May about how to how to write long-form narrative nonfiction. Wow. And one of the big 
parts of the thing that I've been thinking a lot about while I've been preparing this workshop is how, how do I find my stories? Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that stuff. Often they come from really boring places. They, they're, they're like a little gem in an otherwise almost impossible to understand academic paper or psychology paper or memoir of someone that, that you maybe never heard of. I, I love to find little emeralds in otherwise very boring audiobooks. Yeah, that's amazing. And it speaks to how deeply you dig and how far you research on these things. And I want to talk to you about the damage of a phrase. And like another example of a damaging phrase, my brother is convinced that the most damaging phrase in recent years was the first journalist who coined the term Brexit. Because having a name for it meant that all of these people could believe they're voting for what they want it to be rather than, because it was an undefined thing, it meant that so many different people could vote for what they believe Brexit to be rather than having any clear definition of what Brexit is. And therefore we got the situation that we got where it was this undefined thing. But I would argue that the most damaging term coined in recent years is fake news because it allows people to dismiss fact and dismiss research stuff at the drop of a hat. Previously, you could, within reason, present facts to prove an argument. And now you kind of can't anymore because it's so easy. It's such a common term to say, no, fake news. And as someone who will dig that deep and do this research and find the actual news, how do you find that? (laughs) Because again, it dismisses everything that you do with two words, with two syllables. It was so dispiriting. I, I remember the moment when I first heard Trump use the term mm-hmm. fake news. And what happened was, you know, the evidence-based media was starting to determine this is fake news or that is fake news. Mm-hmm. And within days, it felt, Trump started, Trump appropriated the term. And yeah. then the term lost all of its all of its meaning. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I did find that. And, and, and thus we entered the post-truth era. Yeah. Where people on all sides of the spectrum, I would say, uh, it happens a lot on the right, but it happens uh, it happens on the left too. Favor ideology over over evidence. I can't think of anything worse. No truth and evidence. There's a lot wrong. You know, there's a lot of bias. I once got into really bad trouble, and I'm still like cross about it. I gave this podcast interview in about maybe 2015, 2016, when I was talking about how the right wing media, you know, lies the disinformation that's coming from the far right. And then I said, but, you know, there's other ways of lying. And in our media, you know, we're biased. We leave things out too. Anyway, the person I said that to, you know, it's a different type of lie. Lying by omission, mm. lying by by choosing a very narrow set of stories to tell rather than, you know, every story and so on. There's lots of different ways. So anyway, I said that and they got very, very annoyed with me and doubled down. But it is true. It's yeah. it's really it's really true that we lie in different ways. We lie through bias, through omission, through only telling certain stories and not other stories. And then that gives, you know, very bad players like Trump the opportunity to draw false equivalencies between the ways that they lie and the mistakes that that we make. Yeah. If if you understand what I mean. I completely but, oh, understand. Yeah. yeah. But in the middle of that, all you can do is try and tell 
evidence-based stories, factual yeah. stories, as much as possible. And that's very much what, that's very much a theme of the debutante. Yeah. Is, in the end, the debutante, I'd say, is a tribute to, like, the more old-fashioned type of uh, journalism where we're just trying to get to the truth of something rather than trying to tell an, a, a bigger ideological truth. When journalism becomes ideological, I think you've you've got problems. Yeah, and it's why it's good, as said, that I did, throughout listening, go back and forth on whose side I was on and what I believed, because you were just presenting what happened, essentially. You mm. weren't l- leading me in any any direction. But Yeah, and, and I did that. I say I did that deliberately because yeah. everyone's got an opinion on the Carol Howe story. Yeah. And, and a lot of the opinions that people have on Carol Howe and whether there was a wider conspiracy about the Oklahoma City bombing, it felt to me like a lot of those opinions were based on semi-evidence, wishful thinking, magical thinking, ideology or whatever. And it felt to me like my duty in the story was to just tell it as simply and as factually as possible. Yeah, uh, That's what we are supposed to do. Because in, in facts and evidence, what you get is complicated human beings. In ideology, what you get is magnificent heroes and sickening villains. And when you start to think of our fellow humans as one of those two things in that sort of binary way, then you've got real problem. You've got war. You've got, you know, people can hurt people if they think that all that they are is a is a horrendous villain. Yeah. You know, when Waker, when Waker happened, I was talking to my friend Michael Moynihan about this on his podcast, The Fifth Column, When Waco happened, there was a documentary shortly after Waco called Waco Rules of Engagement. And the big message of Waco Rules of Engagement was what happened at Waco was bad. Like, we shouldn't be raiding camps because look what happens. 20, 30 children die. 80 people die. The message of Waco is that we should be trying to avoid future Wacos. Yeah. And that does seem to have shifted a little bit over the decades. And now that for in some circles and some quarters, the message for Waco is we should be doing more Wacos. Or well, again, it's kind of the yeah. story of the debutante. The argument is if we'd Wacoed them, <laughs> the Oklahoma yeah. City bombing w- w- wouldn't have happened, you know, if 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 that had been done. And I just think we need to be very careful about that sort of stuff. As as America and, you know, Britain teeters on, I mean, civil war is too big a word for it, but certainly teeters on, on a greater polarisation than I've seen in my lifetime. I, I think it's incumbent on us to try and tell careful, factual, nuanced, humanist stories. Mm-hmm. Especially if that's sort of beginning to go out of vogue a little bit. Yeah. I think it's all the more important for for those of us that you know care about that stuff to to keep doing it. And the humanist element is is really important in this story as well because you kind of you're very open about your journey with this story while telling the story because there is a point where you know you 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 you're open about wrestling with the the romance of a conspiracy theory and the responsibility of factual storytelling because there's points where you get caught up in someone has has suggested it was this and suggested it was that and you kind of you go along with that because it's like well that that felt that feels yes that must be what happened and that must be it. and then when someone else presents the facts and says 
well, actually, X, Y, Z. Again, I'm being careful not to, I'm being, I, I want to talk about the story, but not tell the story, because I think you yeah, tell yeah, the yeah. story very carefully. So I don't want to do any of that. So how was that to kind of <laughs> present your own fallibility, I guess, on display? Well, yeah. <laughs> I've noticed a little thing about myself, um, which is, and I don't know how unusual it is, but when somebody tells me something, that like tells me their point of view about something, I always think to myself, well, that makes sense. And then when somebody else tells me the opposite point of view, yeah. I think, oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Like, I do like my... my I can't believe and, that and we I, were hating on Joe Rogan earlier, because that's exactly <laughs> the problem with Joe. <laughs> Is right. anyone comes on and goes, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And then the next person comes on, no, 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 yeah, that makes sense. How well, dare can, we? I'll tell you what, the, well, the difference, <laughs> the difference is that Joe, all of this is unfolding live on Joe Rogan. Yeah, yeah. Whereas it's, certainly with my stuff, it's so heavily edited and I think about it so much when I'm back yeah, at home. Yeah. It's like I could have all of those thoughts when I'm like out in the field gathering the material, but then I've got some opportunity when I'm back at home yeah, to, to actually make... Yeah, to analyse and make more sense of it. So, but you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And I think it's just the fact that he smartly puts out three hours a day, whereas I put out about three hours a year. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. it takes me so long to <laughs> takes me so long to edit. Well, um, how good are you at avoiding the rabbit holes? Like we keep talking about the rabbit holes mm. that breed conspiracy theories, but. Your job is kind of going down rabbit holes and choosing mm. the right rabbit holes. And there's things like, in, in this story, there's things that you show s- a s- such restraint to just drop in and move on, like she was an extra in a Weird Al Yankovic video. That's, again, that's something that you just, you can dr- yeah. drop a line in and go, right, okay, we've not got time to get into <laughs> how or why that happened. Yeah. Right, how, how, right. How, how alluring is it to to go down every rabbit hole. There's nothing in more alluring than that. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm never happier when I'm, I'm never yeah. happy when I'm down a rabbit hole. Yeah, there used to be a huge section in the show about how she was a big fan of Throbbing Gristle, the band that yeah. became Psychic TV in the 90s. Yeah. And then I went down a great big rabbit hole about Throbbing Gristle and mm-hmm. Psychic TV and what happened to Genesis Peorage and possibly what Genesis Peorage did. So yeah, it's my it's my life going down those rabbit holes and mm. exploring every angle from, and I just love it, like finding mysteries, noticing something that people haven't noticed before. But as I say, what's lucky about the way I do it is that I can lose myself, you know, a twig in the river of the story. I can just lose myself because I know that I've got an opportunity when I'm when I'm back home and all the evidence has been gathered for me to as you say, like analyse it and turn yeah. it into a into a nuanced proper story. Hence hence it being good that I that my stuff is sort of very tightly edited and heavily thought out. Because otherwise you can just spew all sorts of nonsense out, out into the world when you when you're down the rabbit hole and getting very, very excited. And tell you the reason why my first book, Them, is called Them. Yeah. Uh, I was in Portugal being chased by the Bilderberg group. I tried to sneak into a meeting of the Bilderberg group and their shadowy henchmen chased me away and a car chase ensued. I know. Well, I say a car chase, I was going 30 and so was he. But <laughs> Had I gone faster, he would have gone faster. Anyway, I was back. I was back at home. And um, do you remember the journalist John Diamond? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So John Diamond, he was married to Nigella Lawson, and he got throat. He got terminal throat cancer. And Victoria Corrin set up a poker game. You know, as a way of kind of entertaining him 
during his final months. Right. So a bunch of us, including Graham Linehan and Roger Alton, who was the editor of The Observer, this really highfalutin poker game. And Vicky was the European poker champion. Yeah. Vicky was like a proper, you know, she's not just a yeah, columnist, she's like legit. a poker yeah, champion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One time, little tangential story, one time I was playing poker with her in a hotel in Cardiff and I looked at my cards, it was like two aces. I thought, okay, you know, I put my cards back down. I thought, I'll play this. I'll play this casually. I won't do like a big raise. I'll just do a little raise. I'll lure people in. And so I went round the, the table and it got to Vicky. And she said, well, I'm, I'm out because I know you've got a good hand, John. And I said, I said, how do you know? And she said, um, because when you looked at your cards, you went. <laughs> 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 so that's how she, yeah, that's how she gets to be the European poker champion, and I'm, I'm just a, a schmuck who never wins at poker. Anyway, uh, John Diamond would bring along like Nigella's. I remember one time he brought along a chocolate cake, and he said Nigella invented this chocolate cake today. Do you want to be the first people to try it? Do you want to be her guinea pigs? Amazing. So yeah, so that was amazing. And and anyway, I say that John Diamond said it. He didn't say it, what he did, because he'd, he'd had his tongue removed at this point, so he had to write everything down. Wow. So he wrote that down. But anyway, I'd just come back from Portugal. I'd been chased by the Bilderberg Group, and I was so excited. I was so down a rabbit hole. Like, you know, the conspiracy theorists are right. I got chased by these shadowy henchmen. Like, the Bilderberg Group's real. You know, blah, blah, blah. And John Diamond, like, got out his notepad and wrote down, you were sounding like one of them. And he, right. underlined, he underlined the word then, and that's why I decided to call the book then. So that's an example of me in the middle of the research. And this happened yeah. with the psychopath test, with them, with Sabine Public Ashamed, debutante, you know, with, with everything that I do. I lose myself and get like, totally, I see the world through their eyes. But thank God I've got that buffer when I'm back at home and I'm writing it. And by the time the thing comes out, I've got a much more reasoned, nuanced perspective. I love it. I love it. And uh, you've touched upon a few times. I mean, then when you were writing those things and with this story, it being kind of pre-internet, pre-social media. And there's a couple of things that really stand out in that respect. And the first is dial a racist. The fact that that was a thing, (laughs) that there was a phone number to ring up to hear a racist just talking about being a racist and how great racism is. And it was just a phone line you call up and get, yeah, it was an outgoing message. It's just, yeah, here's a big racist speech. How in, like, things are mad now, (laughs) but they were pretty mad back then too, right? Because that was just an insane thing to hear. Well, actually, I remember, like, going around gun shows at the time. I'd I'd spent quite a lot of time at gun shows back then. Um, if I'm waylaid, like the craziest woodpecker is eating from my bird table right in front of the window. Oh, beautiful. Looks, looks like a bird in disguise. Uh, <laughs> like a bird going to a clown party. They're but, watching you. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, I used to go to gun shows back then. And I remember that the busiest tables at the gun shows weren't the, weren't the tables selling the AR-15s or whatever, they were the table selling the conspiracy VHSs. Mm, and right. this was pre-Alex Jones. And yeah. these videos were so boring. It was like two old men 
sitting around discussing the all-seeing eye in the atop the pyramid Mate, on the back I get of the sent, bill. I get sent YouTube <laughs> clips that are like that every now and then. And again, even yeah. even from people I love, I'll get 10 minutes in and be like, nah, I can't. This is yeah, just... Yeah, yeah. yeah, so I can imagine. <laughs> so all these things are clues, right? That that the internet was going to be massive. Dial a racist mm-hmm. was a popular thing in Tulsa. People would phone up and listen to racist outgoing messages. The, the, the conspiracy VHSs at the gun shows were wildly popular. Uh, these were all clues, you know. The other one that got me was the Turner Diaries, which is essentially mm. white supremacist fan fiction or white t- a t- mm. terrorist fan fiction because it's just dreaming about starting a war, a, a, yeah, a race, race war. war. Yeah. It's the most racist anti-Semitic book you could possibly imagine. It's like it makes me laugh. Timothy McVeigh was a huge fan of the Turner Diaries, but he swore he wasn't a racist. He swore he just right. liked it for his anti-government activism. But that's like you know, reading the Turner Diaries for its anti-government stuff and not its racism's like watching a porn film for the for the dialogue scenes between yeah. the sex. Yeah. Like it's the most pornographically racist book you can you can imagine yeah and yeah and huge like huge at the gun show this is an ex- this is one example of why the people who say the people on the left like the academics who say that they're not as lone wolfy as you think they're much more connected that's certainly a bit of evidence in their favor because if this book the turner diaries is being passed around all the militia groups like you've got to be suspicious of anyone who read and enjoyed the Turner Diaries. Mm-hmm. It's not Noam Chomsky. It's yeah. not reasoned yeah. anti-government yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's really sick shit. And that is an example. And it's true. You know, there's an academic in in the debutante who makes that point, and she's absolutely right about that. The the fact that the Turner Diaries was being handed around gun shows, given up for free, and uh, uh, neo-Nazi conventions, but also popular in militia groups and so on, that's definitely a point and evidence in their favour that there is more of a connection than, than yeah. you think. How desensitised are you to these things, John? Because sitting across from a man who's showing you his swastika tattoo, talking to people who adore the Turner Diaries, as a Jewish man, mm. does it wash over you comfortably? Or do you have those moments of, man, this is, what an unpleasant world. <laughs> Most often, most often when I'm out gathering the material, the things that I need to go home and tell the story well, I'm just so pleased when something happens in front of me that I could then use in the story that I'm not really thinking about the morality of it. It's when I get back home that I start thinking about the morality of it. And, uh, you know, so if I'm ever sort of emotionally impacted, that tends to happen more when when I'm back at home. Because it's so important, you know, when you're out getting the story, just gathering the material is what matters. That just matters so much. But yeah, so but that's not always true, though. I remember when I, I made this documentary years ago about Jonathan King, you mm-hmm. know, the music impresario yeah. who, who was imprisoned for underage sex. And a couple of things happened, I think, in that story where I was like out gathering material and, and, and I noticed something or whatever that really, really sort of upset and sickened me. So so once in a while, it'll happen out in the field. But more often than not, I'm just glad to be getting good stuff. Yeah. And then when I'm back at home, that's when I think about what it all means. Yeah. Well, well, you've mentioned being back at home and putting it all together a few times. And I've mentioned being a bit of an audio nerd. And the podcast sounds beautiful. And I was delighted at the end to hear the... Um, 
sound credit or music credit going to J- Joel Ronson. Yeah, my son Joel, he scored three of my podcasts now. How was it working? How is it working with your son? Because you, you and Joel came to my Edinburgh Fringe show. I think it's the first time we met properly. Um, and I've spoken to Joel numerous times over the years about podcasting, about audio. So, yeah. And isn't his how music is that? just... Oh, well, I mean, I it's think amazing. his music's brilliant. Yeah. yeah, there's so many. With each of the three podcasts that he scored, Butterfly Effect, Last Days of August, and, and The Debutante, the scores had like so many compliments on, on each occasion from people who've no idea that he's my son. Just like, you know, you you read like reviews on, on Audible saying, you know, what a beautiful score. Yeah, 100%. Um, I see, I was listening away. I've not noticed his name at the end of the other ones. I've listened to them all mm-hmm. and think you have such a, it's just, yeah, it always, it's a joy to, to, to listen to. And then, yeah, it was only on this one. I was like, oh, hang on. I know that name. Right. Well, to be honest, I am so controlling of all aspects of the process yeah. that like I made it like I, I made a decision before the debutante actually I made the decision on things fell apart but I kept that decision going for the debutante that I'm not going to get involved in in the sound design I, I if I did get involved I would have a million opinions yeah. but I think it's pretty healthy to cede control at some point and, and I'm so controlling when it comes to the storytelling mm-hmm. that I that I'm, with both things fell apart with Sarah, my producer, and with the debutante with Aisha, my producer. On both occasions, I said, "You know what? Like, I, I want to hear it once it's all been sound designed and scored and everything." But I'm just going to leave all of that to you, and it makes them kind of happy because it's really interesting, creative work to sound design a, a show, yeah. and, and it makes me happy because it means you know. I don't want to be controlling. I want to be collaborative. And so this is a part of the process where I can be like really collaborative and let other people, you know, be creative and let their creativity come to the show. And so the, so the long answer, that's a long answer to the short answer, which is that I don't actually work with Joel. I, right. I, I, hand, I hand Joel over to someone else. And that, Amazing. Um, yeah. I love that. Well, I mean, to kind of, of start to wrap things up, you've talked about working on a book next. And I've always wondered, kind of, uh, this is a broad question here, but what? how do you decide which stories are a book, which stories are a podcast? And what's the difference in kind of of the process of all of this? Because podcasts do seem more immediate, but then, you know, we've spoken that this last one is 30 years in the making. Like some of these interviews <laughs> are 30 years old. So that's not that immediate, John. That's not that immediate use of the of 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 the medium. So yeah, what make how do you make these decisions and what's the pro the, the kind of difference in the processes? It's for, oh, I mean I could oh, I could talk I could answer that question over several hours. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the uh, podcasts are more fun because I'm I just said I was controlling, but I'm also very collaborative. So I'm I'm bouncing back and forward yeah. with with the producer, it's much more structured to the producer will set up the interview, you know, so it's much more of a kind of structured situation doing a podcast. Mm. A book is this huge, it's like being in the fog, you know, it's much more lonely. You have to be so much more self-disciplined because no one, no one's telling you to work or to not work that day. Yeah. If I'm doing a show for Audible or the BBC, you know, it has to be finished at a certain time. If I'm taking a day off, then what's my producer going to do? And so on. So in terms of just daily life, a podcast is is more structured and 
as a, as a consequence, you don't feel like... There's always a moment when you're writing a book when all the other books you've written, all the success you've had just vanishes away and you just think, I'm just a man sitting in a room, all I am. And mm. it makes you feel very uh, lost, paranoid, and you have to really struggle to remind yourself that you can, you can do this, you can write a book. It can be so easy to have a detachment over previous works and successes, can't it? And kind of be going, yeah. well... If it means Again, anything. 30, 40, however many years into your career, going, well, that was l- luck until now. Now uh, I'm sitting here yeah. and this is the real me. I don't know what I'm doing. All of that, I've just, yeah, I've lucked it out. Totally. Uh, every project, I've said that to my wife. It's, yeah. It's, I've, I've no, <laughs> it's all been luck. It's, my luck has run out. I'm fucked. No one's going to be interested. So, so books are harder, I'd yeah. say. Books matter so much. My my ambition for books is so high. I do think a lot of nonfiction writers don't have the ambition that novelists do. Right. Like you you read so many nonfiction books where the first chapter, they say, this is what I'm going to tell you in this book. And then in every subsequent chapter, they just tell you the thing that they told you that they're going to tell you, just in more detail. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you bought a novel and they did that, you'd be outraged. Yeah. So, so I think so. I have really, really high ambitions for my books. I, I, I have all the ambition of a novelist. Like, I want the book to, to sort of, you know, live and transcend and be about everything in the world, everything that matters. Like my whole life. I think part of the reason why I feel like a beginner each time I start writing a book is because I feel like everything in my life of any worth I've put into the last book. Mm. So so you sort of set, once that book is delivered, you're sort of resetting to default. Yeah. You have to start again from scratch. So I would say the books are a lot harder, but if you get it right, it can feel, it can be just the most important thing in your life. It's, it's the book that you've just written. I mean, obviously, parenthood and being a husband. All those too. other things, yeah. Those yeah, as well. But... Yeah, but, you know, there's a sort of magic that comes if the book's good. And the books are good, John. I've, I've, I've told you before that Them is maybe the book I've got the most vivid memory and emotional attachment to because I read the bulk of it the first year me and Dan Lissac played Glastonbury and I, it was raining and horrible and I was all excited to go to the festival and then it was raining and horrible so I sat mainly in my camper van r- reading Them and then going and doing our first gig and, yeah... I'm excited for, for what's ahead. Can I tell you a quick story about them? When them first came out, I was on a plane. It was just after 9-11. And so the plane was completely empty. There was like four of us in economy. And I saw some guy like on, on the next aisle reading them. By crazy coincidence, it was, it was Dara O'Brien. Um, right. And I, but this was kind of before he was particularly well known. So I didn't recognize him. And I thought... I thought, you know what, this, you know, I won't say anything. Like, I won't say, oh, my God, you know, I, I wrote this book. It'll happen again. Do you know how many times it's happened since then? How many times? That I've seen someone read one of my books. Never. <laughs> See how many times it ever happened. I wish, uh, I wish I'd, yeah. That, so, anyway, years later, I, I, I put two together and said to Dara, oh, my God, you know, I saw you reading my book. But it's never happened again. Never. 30 years ago. I love that it was someone that would allow, that, that, the world would allow you to then correct that mistake and mention it yeah. to them. That's beautiful. 
Well, yeah. John, thank you very much for your time. As said, we could talk for hours and hours and hours on end, but I appreciate you taking the time today. So, yeah, thank you for chatting. Scoob, it was such a pleasure to talk to you again after seven years. Yeah, mad, isn't yeah. it? I know. We'll have to do it again sooner next time. I would like that. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was John Ronson. I told you it was a good one, didn't I? And as said, I said at the start, a load of episodes that you should go and dig your teeth into or back into. I won't go over them again. Just rewind the episode. Go like four minutes in, three minutes in, and you'll get all of them listed. Right. Thank you for tuning in. I'll be back next week as ever. Until then, listen to the debutante on Audible. Stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta.